God, you are good. Um, You love us. You pursue us. You've made relationship with you possible. And we deeply appreciate that. And just want to give our gratitude and thanks. And just at this moment, under your breath, give God thanks for uh, him accepting you and loving you at, at this time. Just require them to give you about 10 seconds. God, thank you. Now we just want to hear and receive from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we are finishing out the Sermon on the Mount here this morning, and it's actually an incredibly interesting place because Jesus has ended his teaching right around verse 12 of chapter 7, where he says, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. It's essentially a summary of everything that Jesus has laid out, everything that Jesus has said as he's giving his last point. And now what Jesus does to conclude his teaching is he's not changing the subject. That would make no sense as a teacher. It would make no sense for me all day to talk about love than tell you all to go eat hot dogs this afternoon just wouldn't work. You go, what is he talking about? This is a continuation of what Jesus has already taught, and he's giving three examples to the people that are listening. And it's really unique because he's talking to those who would be travelers, those who would be farmers, and those who would be builders. And he's looking around, and he's looking at the crowd that is with him, and he's going to give them three examples about two ways with one judge at the end of all of this. And so this morning, as we get ready to read this and how it lays out, is we're going to look at gates that are narrow and wide, trees that are good and bad in fruit, and foundations which are rock and sand. And what Jesus wants us to see in this is something that I opened up this morning with, is something that we've talked about here often, is breaking this category of simply viewing people as good or bad, or in a sense, religious, doing things to maybe get God's favor, and then those who are bad. And there's this category of what it actually looks like to have relationship with God. And it's absolutely mind-blowing in some of the examples that he uses. For example, he talks about a narrow gate, one in which we would assume that if you were to walk into it, it would ultimately crush you, but it's infinitely large on the other side once you walk through it. Whereas this wide gate serves more as a funnel that if you walk that path, it'll become incredibly narrow and crush you in the end. And so as Jesus is talking about this this morning, he wants these listeners to not simply look at externals, but internals. So let's read what he has to say to us this morning, picking up in verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. 
Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. Healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone, when he, he who hears these words of mine and does them, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the flood came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Now, let me just read these last few verses, because they're not throwaways. They're incredibly important. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. He was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. So, when we look at this today and the examples that Jesus uses, we have to come under the assumption and understanding that back in Jesus' day and even prior to that, they lived in what we would consider a highly religious society. Now, for those of us today, we've moved quite a bit away, especially through the 80s and 90s, from being a religious society, just simply culturally in America, and there's been a recent phenomenon of coming around to some sense of spirituality, spirituality, where you talk to a lot of people and they'll say, I'm not religious, but I'm a very spiritual kind of person. And that's a bit of a new movement that has come away from just simply this atheistic or agnostic position. But in the history of the world, people have been vastly religious by and large. And sometimes we begin to lose sight of that even when we're reading the scriptures and what Jesus is telling us about. And in Jesus' day, there were people who definitely lived by a code of ethics or this moral way of living. A few weeks ago, I was watching Pirates of the Caribbean. Anybody remember the movie? Been on the ride? And one of the images I have in my head of ancient Rome or the ancient world, it was all like Tortuga. Tartuga, that place, you know what I'm talking about? Where it was just debauchery and filth and sinfulness and everybody was doing what they thought was right in their own sight and mind and eyes. And there's this, in my biblical imagery or my biblical imagination, I've built up this sense of that world was horrific and it was just filled with awful people. But in my own mind, having to come to grips with, that actually isn't the case. Those societies prided themselves on moral codes of ethic. They prided themselves on serving the gods and doing what was right by them. In fact, Rome itself had what they called the Mos Maorium, a code of ethics, which I want to just briefly bring to our attention this morning in order to understand what Jesus is getting at. The first one is this word, phytus. The Latin word phytus, you're going to see these up here, encompasses several English words such as trust, trustworthiness, good, faith, faithfulness, confidence, reliability, and credibility. This was one of the 
Roman code of ethics that they prided themselves on. It would seem that you could take this directly even from the teachings of Jesus, that we ought to be trustworthy. We should let our yea be yea and our nay be nay, that we should be faithful, reliable. The next one was pietas, was the Roman attitude of dutiful respect towards the gods, homeland parents, and family which required the maintenance of relationships in a moral and dutiful manner. Cicero defined pietas as justice towards the God and went beyond sacrifice and correct ritual performance to inner devotion and righteousness of the individual. So you have this code of ethic, which was one in which you would treat your neighbor rightly and justly and kindly. Disciplina is the next one. It was a military character of Roman society, it suggested the importance of discipline. We just got done with Paul writing letters to Corinth and talking about not just church discipline, but what it means to be a disciplined person in the faith. This is as related to education, training, discipline, self-control. Gravitas and Constantina, probably butchered that. Gravitas was dignified self-control. The next is virtus, was constituted the ideal of the true Roman male. Gaius discusses virtues in, the same for, in some form of his work and says that it is virtuous for a man to know what is good, evil, useless, shameful, or dishonorable. Dignitas and octorotas, these were the end result of displaying the values of the ideal Roman and the service of the state in the form of priesthood, military positions, and magistrates. Essentially, at the end, you can see their prestige and respect. And what this tells us is that it would be very difficult to look at your common Rome person and even your common Jewish person and make a distinction on whether they were religious or not because both groups of people, they're praying groups of people. Both groups of people, they're worshiping groups of people. They may worship different deities, but they have this aspect of worship in which they would participate in. Both groups of people had some kind of gathering they would attend. They would have sacrifice they would do unto their true God, Yahweh, or the gods. And so it would have been incredibly difficult to simply segregate people out and say, here's the religious ones, and here's the bad ones, and here's the good ones, because it was a melting pot in that culture of really this moral code of ethics that some followed, some maybe didn't follow, they tried to follow. And then along comes Jesus. And he's astonishing the crowds because he's telling them something incredibly important this morning. He's not contrasting good and bad people. He's contrasting religious people and Christians. I want you to see this this morning. This is very, very important. This is the background to then what we'll discuss and how it applies to us this morning. But one of the most important things about these two ways that Jesus is talking about this morning is how to discern one from another. Religious people and Christians look a lot alike. Trust me. Have you guys ever looked around and noticed that? When you even look at what Jesus is saying here, It doesn't say there are two trees, a tree with fruit and a tree without fruit. 
That wouldn't take much discernment at all, would it? You would easily be able to look at the tree without fruit and say, that tree is absolutely dead. It isn't producing leaves. It has nothing on it. It's of no use. It's of no good. Let's cut it down. No, he says there's one tree here, but, but there's fruit on this tree. And he says you'll recognize them by their fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit. A bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Now, here's what we need to know. The word bad doesn't mean shriveled. It means poison. It means poison. So you wouldn't know because from all outward appearances, it would look like every other one. When I was a kid, I lived in Southern Oregon, and that used to be just filled with orchards, pear orchards to be exact. And we used to sneak in to these pear orchards as fifth graders and fourth graders, and we would have pear fights. And yeah, it was super fun, really destructive, and probably made a lot of farmers mad. But our brains, we were boys, they weren't developed yet, okay? We didn't think until we're like 30. So just to put that one out there. Okay, that's where we're at. So you would reach up there and you would grab a pear off the tree and sometimes you'd get a nice hard one. But from the eye, you wouldn't know if you were getting a hard one or you'd grab one sometimes and once you gripped into it, you squish that thing up and just smear it on somebody. It was a beautiful thing to do. Awesome. The hard ones, you know, you took them out on some people, other people you use the nice soft ones. Anyways, you couldn't tell just from the eye. There had to be more to it and able to actually discern. And the word bad here has this idea that there is a poison because the trees look exactly alike. Or how about this, the foundation. How would you know what foundation it was built on? You had to look a little closer. Outward appearance, if you're just doing a drive-by of homes, you think they all have the same foundation. My last house had this gnarly rock foundation and not like smooth. It was like jagged lava rock that they got from the volcanoes to build the foundation of the house. Nikki was gnarly, huh? All right, I crawled under there a few times. It was not delightful at all. And so you would have to actually look a little bit more. Why? What's visible looks the same. It's only what's hidden that makes the difference. This is what Jesus is getting at this morning. Anybody can see the difference between moral and immoral behavior. People inside the church and outside the church, though, were being smothered, were dying spiritually. Why? Because they can't tell the difference between religion and Christianity. So this is a common message to some degree at this church. But this is also going to be a warning for many of us here this morning, not just so we understand this on the outside and look within our own hearts and say, have I just gone through the religious act and ceremonies of what it looks like to be a Christian, but to actually look within our hearts and do some introspection and say, what am I, what are we portraying to the world around us? What kind of fruit is being produced in our lives? And Jesus is saying, I want you to be able to distinguish between the right one and the bad one. Now, we have to consider this. Every single person holds to a religious creed of some sort. Even the irreligious, 
those who say, no, 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 I don't believe in a God. Ultimately, you have some set of values, some set of rules, some set of way which determine your outlook on life. It might just simply be that culture tells you what to do, what to believe, how to act. It might be some crazy made-up deity that you think directs the world and It sits on the back of a turtle and that's what you bow down to and worship and tells you to be nice to Mother Earth. There is something out there, I promise, in which you're being directed by, whether it's an actual real thing or not, but internally go, this is why I need to be a righteous, kind, praying, good, whatever it is, kind of person in this world because I need approval and acceptance from this thing in order to belong. And Jesus looks at these groups of people and he says, my goodness, they are very similar, very similar. We'll read later on, I think in Matthew's account, that there will be people in the gatherings of churches and he's separating the sheep from the goats, right? The wheat from the chaff. And what Jesus talks about is there are people doing all sorts of similar kinds of things but for utterly different reasons on the inside with different results in their character. This matters. This is going to impact you. This impacts me. Now, to unravel this and impact this for us this morning, Jesus first warns us of false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. In the Old Testament, whenever Jesus, or excuse me, whenever God writes about, talks about sheep, it's this universal term, understanding of sheep are God's people. Then we have these prophets who come, which means they're speakers, they're teachers, they're the one proclaiming some kind of word uh, to those that are listening. As far as the eye can see, they're sheep. They're not skeptics, they're not atheists. They're not immoral kinds of people. On the outside, they look religious. They look moral because, well, they're prophets. And in some sense, they're then virtuous people. And this prophet doesn't just say, Lord. He says, Lord, Lord. Listen, if I want my kids to understand an emotion of mine, maybe an emotion of frustration, maybe an emotion of, I've asked you 10 times to pick that up, they're going to get middle-named Ava Marie, Benjamin William, all right? If you get middle named, you know it is bad. (laughs) You know there is a sense of emotion that's actually charged behind what's being said. Here in this passage, Jesus says, they're not just saying, Lord. They're saying, Lord, Lord, just like Jesus might say, Martha, Martha, Mary, Mary. I want you to hear the intensity of my emotion. Well, these false prophets, these false teachers, they are in this sense saying, Lord, Lord, we love you. We follow you. We rejoice in you. And there's all kinds of emotion that is attributed to what they're doing. And the person's coming up and saying, I believe in God. I'm moral. I prophesied in your name that at least, at the very least, it means I taught about you. I spoke about you. Or I've been deeply involved in people's lives. We did miracles and saw these incredible things happen. We've been involved in ministry. And Jesus says, I never knew you. Never knew you. When's the last time you meditated on that passage? 
When was the last time you had some you and Jesus time with a little Matthew 7 and considered what Jesus is saying there? I never knew you. It's not like he says, oh, well, you used to be my follower. Now you're not. Oh, oh you know what? You just sort of change your, he says, no, I never knew you. This tree is one with bad fruit. And what's absolutely amazing is on the outside, they all look the same. Following the Ten Commandments, trying to be moral, behaving, being kind to their neighbors. But on the inside, there's something utterly different going on as to why they follow, why they obey, why they take the Sermon on the Mount serious. What are the differences? We're going to take a look at just sort of religious people right now. The difference is religious people, though they give to the poor, they pray, they do all of these things, it's for what reason? Well, you don't have to look very far. If you just turn back maybe a page or look at Matthew chapter 6, verse 2, Jesus says, Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Pop quiz. Why do they give to the poor? Yes, whoever said that louder. To be praised by others. Inwardly, they're doing this thing in order to get something in return from the person they're either doing it for or from culture around them to look at them and say, you're such a good person. You're such a kind person. Then what does Jesus say? Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Do they do it for the poor's sake? No, they do not. They actually do it for their own sake. Why? To get honor from men. Do you understand that honor, glory, is something that every single person craves, desires, wants? We all need that attaboy or somebody to come alongside us and pat us on the back. But ultimately, we desire to be accepted from truly the only one whose acceptance it actually matters that it comes from. And so what happens is humans have leaned into this idea that if I can get enough praise from other people, if I can get enough brownie points, then I'll have glory, I'll be filled, I'll be whole. But they're doing it for the wrong reasons. The attention they need is coming from other people and it's incredibly dissatisfying because it's for their glory, their kingdom. And look, sometimes it even looks like it's under the name of Jesus. So what happens? These people, they're called ravenous wolves. And I'm gonna have a slide up here. I've always liked that because it kind of makes them sound like this, like ferocious might be one of the words that the NIV has there says. And you've got this depiction of them that they just look mean and horrible and awful. And of course, we should be able to pick them out. What it actually says in the text is they are inwardly, and the word that gets translated into English, ferocious, but A better way this could actually be said and should actually be said is inwardly they are swindlers, extortion, or blackmail. That's the way this word should actually be used. It's the way it's used all throughout the rest of the New Testament in the Greek. But it doesn't really do that. And what happens when we use this word ferocious, it actually gives us the wrong idea of what's going on. But could you imagine being a translator and all of a sudden you're reading this passage and it says, and inwardly they're blackmailers. Like, is that really something inwardly you actually do? Because I'm pretty sure I know how blackmail works. It's not inward. I ain't blackmailing myself. 
I blackmail somebody else. But they're saying inwardly, on the inside, they're blackmailing, they're extorting themselves, they're swindlers of themselves. Why does it say this? Or why would this be a better rendering? Why would it sound like, that matter, nonsense to say you're blackmailing yourself? Because all of us would go, "Eh, that's not what's going on there. But it is what's going on if you understand the context of this passage. How are they blackmailing themselves? Inside, they desperately need, we desperately need to assure ourselves there's something worthwhile about us. You do, I do, we need it, we crave it. There's something significant, something important, something of value, something that tells the world we're of value. And so what do they do? They're going to make the world give us what we need. We're going to make people think we're good people, trying so hard to be great parents, successful business women or businessmen in the community, well thought of. We crave that. We need that. I'm going to make somebody fall in love with me. And what's going on on the inside? Jesus says, we lack inner honor. We don't have it. We want it. We crave it. We can't get it on our own. So we're just like the hypocrite who is sounding that trumpet saying, look at what I'm doing for the community. Love me. Look at what I'm doing for the world around me. Praise me. I'm good. I'm great. I'm fantastic. And I'm going to make the world give me what I need. But what happens is it becomes incredibly burdensome on us. To be a religious person, and we do this with others, and we do this with God, it's essentially saying, God will have to bless us if I do this. God will have to give me the life I want, answer my prayers the way I want. People then, if I do things for them, will need to honor me. You'll have to do good things back for me. People then will say, you're a good person because I do all of these things deep down on the inside. What happens, though, when you don't get what you want from God or from others? I hear this a lot. I've sat with many people over 17 years, almost 18 years of ministry. And I hear, but I did this for God. And this is what I get in return. I loved selflessly my neighbor. And this is how they repaid me. Not only then is it something against my neighbor, but then God's ways don't work. And what we've done is we've related this idea that all of life is a transaction that we're having and we're participating in. And if I do the right things, then God has to do something back. And what that creates in us is a chapter 7, verse 1 of Matthew, judgmental attitude towards other people. What that does is it causes us then to despise people to look around at them and say, they're foolish. What's wrong with them? You become rigid with others. You become heartless towards others. And ultimately, you use your religion to try to get what you want, excluding others around you in order that you're propped up and elevated. We need to change. We need to change our thinking on this. We need to move away from the idea that all of life is just one massive transaction. What do I mean by that? You showed up here this morning, and many people probably don't even run this through the grid of their mind, but there's going to be an aspect in which you said to yourself, what did I get out of that today? Anybody ever said that at church? I have. 
Like, oh, that did nothing for me today. All right, I came here expecting something. There's going to be a transaction. When I hang out, for example, with some of my friends tonight, I have a transaction happening. I expect to get laughter from them. I expect to have this joy. I might give something, but I expect something in return. So much of life is spent in this way of thinking in which we're always looking at everything I do in order to get something back from it. And it's revealing the motive of the heart. If I give my time, what are they going to do for me? How about worse? I gave my time and they didn't even recognize me. Wait a second. I helped load that trailer. I helped set up that coffee? How come they think her and not him? You have an inward glory honor problem. Because we're looking at life in terms of transactions and really it's just this big religious game. I'm praying, I'm doing, I'm singing, I'm just like all the other Christians. Why isn't it looking like this for me? And we've treated God in the same fashion. And he's calling us on the carpet. And he's saying, oh, buddy, you better look deep within your heart. Because there are going to be those that say, Lord, Lord, but your motive was off. It was all for your own glory. This is why religion is exhausting. This is why people quit the church. They expect things out of certain relationships and they don't get them. And then they're ticked, not at the church, they're ticked at the relationship that didn't work out. Or they're mad that they gave to a church and all of a sudden the church did something different than they wanted them to do. And they're upset about that. I'm leaving. No, listen, we're looking at things with the wrong heart motive. That's why relationships break down and fall apart in interpersonal relationships with one another. You didn't give me what I expected, thought I deserved, what I had earned from you. Rather than being a kind of people I can simply love in which the way Jesus has called us to love because we're first loved by him, freed to love others. We're viewing all of life in these transactions. Look, religion always starts on the outside and it works its way in. And if you want to know if you're religious, you're doing a lot for God and you're bitter on the inside. You're doing a lot for God and you're always angry and upset. You're doing a lot for God and you're shaking a fist back at God. You are religious. I'm sorry. Maybe you need to repent. Maybe you need to look within your heart. But that is a sign of religiosity in your heart. It starts from the outside and works its way in. Whereas being a Christian starts on the inside and then works its way back out into the world. That's the difference. A Christian is somebody who's had their life radically changed. And you're not trying to have to maintain a way of living or trying to maintain this inner glory, but it's simply been given to you. And there's an inner fullness. So I've got a few minutes left. How do I get to this place? Well, the first thing Jesus is saying, and this was astonishing the crowds, is you need to lose your religion. Lose your religion. Lose the ways in which you think this is how I carry favor with God. These are the things I do in order to find favor and to get something from him. Lose the identity that you built up by being a religious person. Lose the places that you point to in your life that says, now you know I must be a Jesus follower. Look at what I do. I feed the poor, I help the needy. 
you are sounding the trumpet. You are doing exactly what Jesus is warning us of in this teaching of his. You're using the things you do for God to justify your life rather than just simply believing and receiving that God has accepted you where you're at. Well, how do I get there? Jesus is unlike any other religious teacher because in the Sermon on the Mount, he doesn't say, this is how you get to God, but he's showing God came down to you. They're astonished at him. They can't believe the things out of his mouth, not just because it was this moral code of ethic that he's talking about how to actually conduct and live ourselves, but he himself is providing the way. He is the narrow way. He declares at the end, he is the judge that you stand before. And it's by relationship with him in which you can know that you are actually accepted. We are being drawn inward to examine our lives and our motives, motives and look to what God is doing. We also see in here that the authentic Christian surrenders their will to him. It's not just about moral or immorality or more self-controlled or less self-controlled. But it's this submission to what is God calling us to do. I will surrender my will. I will surrender my life to you. And then he says, build your house on the rock. Have you entered in through the gate? Is there real change? Is there fruit bearing in your life? Now we build. We build. Well, what does that look like? Don't just be busy for Jesus this morning. In fact, some of you maybe need to become unless busy for Jesus. Some of you maybe need to have a little bit of an undoing and if you become a person who's constantly pointing towards what you do for God in order to prove yourself, let that go and spend time before him. This would have been astonishing for the crowds there that's that day when they heard this teaching. And lastly, and we'll be done because I am so far out of time, Jesus is saying, do whatever it takes to get to me. This morning, what is it that's in the way of you actually knowing Jesus. It's your own works, it's your own religiosity, the very things that you point to in order to prove. He says, come unto me, all you who are heavy laden and burdened. I will give you rest. Some of us are very weary in her because we've done a lot for Jesus. And you need to now step back, consider why, and remember what it's like to just simply have relationship with him to love him, to sit before him. Let's do that this morning. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for a simple reminder. And we can so quickly and easily get removed from that place in which we get so caught up in our activity, in which we look to our religious actions and works to make value for ourselves and we forget in the value, forgotten the value you've already placed on us. So today, may we sit before you, may we sing before you, may we submit our lives before you, and may we be changed by you in this place. Do the work that needs to be done in our hearts. May we be receptive to the work that you want to do. In Jesus' name, amen.